Thanks for joining us as we explore the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in the Gospel of Mark. For discussion guides and details about how to join us on Sundays, please visit fairoaks.org. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Yeah, better than if we were still outside, amen? Uh, We were at a park with some friends this weekend, and they were saying, like, hey, you know, at least it's a dry heat. And I think that that sounds really nice in theory and all, but that's only true insofar as you have air conditioning. Uh, I got out of my car yesterday, which has an air conditioning button, but the stuff that blows is not air conditioned. And I got out of my car, and I was just like, that does not feel very dry. So uh, anyway, all that say, to those of you who are faithful givers to the church, thank you for allowing us to run the air conditioning today and giving everyone a taste of heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Now, if you've got a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Mark chapter 8? And the big question we're going to be looking at this morning is, um, have you ever felt stuck in your relationship with Jesus? Have you ever felt like I'm not growing like I want to? Um, Have you ever felt like maybe it's been a while since I've heard his voice or felt moved by his spirit? Have you um, ever felt like, man, I just sometimes come here on Sundays and I want to worship, but I come in here and I'm just, I'm not moved. I just, if I'm honest, I just feel a little dry inside. Have you ever been there? Yes. I have too. Now, some of you, you might be new Christians, and you're like, I don't understand what you're talking about. The Holy Spirit wakes me up gently in the morning. Uh, I'm just aware of the presence of Jesus throughout the day until he just gently tucks me in in the evening, and then we do it all over again the next day. But if you've walked with Jesus for any amount of time, you know that every believer in our walk with Jesus, we can hit these dry spells where we can feel stuck, where it can feel like, why am I not growing? Why am I not hearing from him like I used to? Why am I not experiencing and being moved by his grace like I used to be? And that's where the disciples are in our text today. Uh, When we started the Gospel of Mark, they started off really strong. Uh, Jesus came to these untrained fishermen and he said, follow me and I'll make you into new humans. I will uh, make you a new kind of person that lives for a new purpose that brings life and justice into the world instead of brokenness and death. And these disciples, uh, they left everything to follow Jesus. They didn't sprinkle a little Jesus on their life. They followed him and they followed his radical call. And we've seen some amazing things in the gospel of Mark. He's working in their lives. He has caused them to join him on his mission and Jesus has even done incredible things through their ministry. But for the last several chapters, uh, we have seen the disciples uh, misunderstand Jesus, fail to trust Jesus, kind of get stuck in their own walk with Jesus. And um, I'll just be honest with you, it's not going to get any better as we enter into Mark chapter 8 today. In fact, in some ways, we're going to hit a real low point in the disciples' journey with Jesus. Welcome to church. Are you ready? Uh, No, but I will say this. By the end of our text, uh, we're going to see a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. It's really the hinge that the whole book turns upon. And we're going to see the disciples go from this low point in their walk with Jesus to an incredible breakthrough in their walk with Jesus. From misunderstanding Jesus to having incredible clarity and breakthrough and movement that sets the rest of the book on a new trajectory. And I've been praying for you this morning that this message would be an encouragement to those of you who have found yourself or maybe presently find yourself stuck in your walk with Jesus because um, God loves you and he wants to get some of you unstuck today. Are you ready? All right. Mark chapter 8 verse 1 says this. 
In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he, that's Jesus, called his disciples and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint along the way. And some of them, well, they've come from very far away. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I've got one person. If you, you've been here through our series in Mark. If, you, if you're a guest with us, you could flip back one page in your Bible to Mark chapter 6 and see there's this event where Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people. Uh, it's, and the setup reads just like this. Um, except here's what's different. Jesus is in a new region now. Um, Pastor Phil did a great job showing us this last week that um, Jesus intentionally is headed into Gentile territory. That is uh, kind of the other people, the people that didn't sin like the Jews, didn't vote like the Jews, think like the Jews, the kind of people you'd go, I'm not going to see them in heaven someday. Jesus goes to the people you would least expect. And Pastor Phil did a great job showing because Jesus is saying, my kingdom is for all kinds of people. It's for anyone that would humbly see that their life is broken and come to me for healing, mercy, and grace. And so as Jesus Jesus is now in this Gentile region. He is ministering just like he did in the Jewish region. And as he's doing this, a great crowd gathers again. Mark even uses the word again. It happened again. Apparently, Jesus preached long sermons. I'll try to go shorter than a three-day message today. Jesus is preaching and teaching. I guess he's Jesus. If Jesus were here, you might stick around for three days. Um, I'll work on getting it under that. Uh, He's preaching this message. He's teaching. He's healing. And they're there for three days. And so Jesus calls his disciples to himself. And he says, hey guys, they look hungry. And this setup, it reads just like the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. Now, um, if you were here with us and you, you saw that story, you're probably thinking, well, after what they saw last time, that Jesus fed like a stadium full of people with a little boy's lunch, surely they're going to be like, you've got this, Jesus. You could think that, but you'd be wrong. Verse 4. I told you it doesn't start pretty today. Verse 4, and his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Like, ah! Look back a page. Come on, guys. Uh, Verse 5, and he asked them, this is how you know Jesus is God. He didn't just strike them dead in anger in that moment. Like, are you kidding me? He is the God of the Bible who is slow to anger and rich in mercy. Look at this answer. Verse 5, and he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and uh, having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that they should also uh, be set before them. And And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. So it happened again. Uh, This is the second great feeding miracle in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus takes um, a few pieces of bread, some fish, and he feeds. Now this time, 4,000 men. We saw last time it was 5,000 men, so that's around 10,000 people, uh, estimates are. So we're still somewhere around maybe a, a minor league stadium here. This is a big crowd Jesus just fed with a few pieces of bread. And um, I don't want to move too quickly off the fact that that's a miracle, um, that if you could do that, people would stick around three days for your teaching. If I could do that, people would stick around three days for my teaching. But Jesus is not like you and me. Jesus can do what you and I cannot. 
Um, and if you weren't here with us when we went through the feeding of the 5,000, I'd encourage you to go back and check out that message because we see so much about the nature and the character of Jesus in these feeding miracles. All the same elements are present here. He has compassion on this crowd. Um, he provides for this crowd with kind of like a laughable, abundant um, excess at the end where they have more left over than when they started. Uh, and the crowd eats and they were satisfied, but I can't re-preach that message. That's worth thinking about further. But since we just looked at all those elements when the feeding of the 5,000, what we're going to do today is focus on the disciples' reaction. Because for the second time, these disciples have failed to trust Jesus. They have misunderstood what Jesus would do. Um, they haven't. And, and here's the thing. Like the first time, you could kind of understand it, Right? Like, there's 5,000 people there, and Jesus says, guys, you give them something to eat. And like, Jesus, how can we do that? 5,000 people, even if we pulled our annual salary, we can't go in town and buy all this off. I would hope that you could at least not have chronological snobbery and look at that and go, yeah, if I were the disciples, I probably wouldn't have understood either. The first one, I'm going to give them a mulligans on that. But the second one, when they had just seen Jesus feed a larger crowd from less food, like, is, is anyone just baffled at these guys? Like, we're, we're talking weeks later. They have just seen Jesus do exactly that. And yet, when he pulls them together and says, guys, they look hungry, their reaction is not, well, hey, Jesus, I, we know you got this. What do you want us to do? How can we help? We know that you can feed a stadium full of people. Their reaction is, no one can feed this many people. And... And it's such a profound failure, uh, <laughs> let me say this, it's such a profound failure that some commentaries and some uh, people will look at this text and go, there's no way that actually happened. This must be Mark telling the same story twice just for emphasis. Um, because how could they be uh, that forgetful, that foolish, that, um, but let me just say this, that directly contradicts what's in the text. Mark tells us this occurred in a different region with a different number of loaves with a different crowd size. So that option is not available to us that it's the same thing done twice because it's not the same thing. Mark even says again in the text. And I would also say, um, I think it directly contradicts uh, your own experience with the Christian life to think that the disciples couldn't possibly be this thick-headed, right? Like, I'm reading some of these commentaries, and like, maybe it's the same thing over and over again. I'm like, have you walked with Jesus for any amount of time? Like, how often do you do this, where um, you have seen God come through? You have uh, seen in the scriptures how God provides. God has moved in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. You have seen, and you know, and you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And then you get to Tuesday, and you completely forget that reality, and you live as if there's not a sovereign God who loves you and is out for your good, and you live as if that's not a reality. Am I the only one? See, the disciples aren't the only ones. This is broken human nature, that um, we can get into these grooves where we can know who God is, we can see what he's done, and yet we can forget what he has done and live as if he hasn't proven himself to be the God that he is. And I would submit to you that we're all prone to this. This is why God graciously included this in Mark's gospel so that we could say, well, what happens when you get stuck like that? What happens when you find yourself going, oh my goodness, I feel like the dum-dums in the text there. How do I go from the dum-dums to the not dum-dums that they'll be next week? 
And, and I would say to you, that's what this whole text is about. So look at verse 11. Jesus is going to engage these guys. Or excuse me, verse 10. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and they went on to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Just so you know, the last person who tested Jesus in the gospel of Mark was the devil. So I just want to say this on repeat. Mark's view of religious people, it's not a good look. Oh, so the religious leaders come. They come to argue with Jesus. They're coming in a demonic spirit to test him, to try to trap him. Verse 12, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, you might think that's really harsh, Jesus. You just gave this great miracle, this great sign to this crowd of Gentiles. Why wouldn't you give a sign to the religious leaders that are from your own people? But again, I point out their approach to Jesus because Mark is very intentional to say these Pharisees, they're not um, genuine seekers who want to uh, maybe learn about Jesus. They're curious and they just want to figure out what they believe. These Pharisees have already made up their own minds about Jesus. They have no interest in learning from Jesus, experiencing his kingdom. They have rejected Jesus. They come to argue with him, to pick fights, to criticize. I think they would have loved Twitter. And they come to try to tempt him and to test him. And Jesus, he doesn't play their games. This is, I, I love this about Jesus. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to play these games. No sign will be given to this generation, this way of thinking, this kind of person. Like Jesus doesn't play religious games. And so he says, no sign will be given for you. Now, it shouldn't surprise us at this point that there's a conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. I think what should surprise us is what comes next. Because we know so far the Pharisees, they're not team Jesus um, and the only other team out there is Team Satan, so they're acting like their father, the devil, trying to trap Jesus. But what happens next is Jesus says his own disciples are starting to become in danger of going the way of the Pharisees. Look at verse 13. And he left them, he got into the boat, and he went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basket full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Um, Jesus has a hard word for his disciples here. And um, I... I I bring that because the Holy Spirit is bringing this to mind that um, sometimes in the church, I think we can avoid having a hard conversation because it's uncomfortable. And Jesus loves these guys enough to have a hard word to press in. He, he tells them, beware. How judgmental of you, Jesus. No, his disciples are in the street. They're in danger. And so he loves them enough to speak into their lives. Now, this is not licensed to be a jerk, to go around just proclaiming everyone else's sin. This is licensed to be like Jesus and to lay your life down for your friends and to speak the truth in love. So Jesus, he sees his disciples are in danger. 
And so they get back in the boat, and he's like, look, guys, we need to talk. You are in danger. Beware. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, if you've never baked before, you might go, that doesn't sound that harsh. Um, I don't know your background. The only things I've really ever baked kind of come in a bag uh, with powder that you just add water to, and I can even usually jack that up. Um, But what leaven is, I had to look this up. Some of you know this. This is where a good commentary or a good dictionary or, frankly, just good community makes us better Bible readers. Uh, What yeast is, is it's a substance that you would um, add to uh, bread to make it rise, Um, or it's something you could put into beer to ferment it if you're a sinner. Um, And so what Jesus says is, um, beware of that. Beware of this uh, chemical that can um, turn and grow and spread and take over an organism. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And scripture will do this often, that um, leaven or yeast, it becomes um, really a metaphor for how something can get into our thinking, get into our heart, and from our heart spread out to affect our whole lives. And Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, um, I think the leaven of the Pharisees makes sense. We just saw Pharisees, they're the bad guys. They act like Satan. They reject Jesus because they just don't see Jesus as useful. They think they're morally superior to everyone else. They think they can earn their way to God through their own moral performance. That They're going to get to judgment day and God's going to be like, thank me for you. Why don't I get off my throne and put you up here? You are so awesome. See, the Pharisees reject Jesus because they think they're awesome. They have no need for a Savior. They're trapped kind of in this religious mindset we've talked a lot about through the series. And so Jesus reminds them, hey, um, beware of the religious mindset that would make you think that you can earn your way to God, that you can earn your way into the kingdom, the good life through your own moral performance, because that is dangerous to you. What's really interesting to me here is he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Um, because that to me is like saying, beware of cats and dogs. I don't think they have anything in common other than they are house pets. Some of you, like, I don't know, is anyone cat and dog people in here? I feel like you can neatly divide. Oh my word, I see a hand there. We have prayer available after service. I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, okay, l- let me use another one then. That's like saying, uh, beware of the Democrats and Republicans. Like, what do those two have in common anymore? See, the the Pharisees, they reject Jesus because they think they have no need for Jesus. They can earn their own way into the good life through their own moral performance. But Herod, we saw in this brief interaction earlier in the Gospel of Mark, he also rejects Jesus. That's what they have in common. Herod rejects Jesus, but for Herod, it's not because he's a morally upright person. Herod, it's because uh, he's kind of the prototypical um, pagan that does perverted things, uh, that kills innocent people, um, that kind of everyone could look at and go, that's what's wrong with the world. Herod, who's taking his brother's wife and doing gross things with the women in his kingdom and oppressing and harming and putting them down. For Herod, he rejects Jesus because Herod thinks he's a god. He thinks, I don't need God to tell me what's going to lead to life and to flourishing. I'm going to tell myself. I'm going to use the power I have as a ruler in this kingdom to take whatever I want. And so he also has no use for Jesus. Not because he thinks he can earn his way to God, but because he thinks he is a God. And, And so here's what they have in common. Both of these groups, the religious people and kind of the secular pagan, what they have in common is they are both self reliant The religious people think they can earn their way to God. Herod thinks he is a God and doesn't need God's word to lead into life and to flourishing. And Jesus says, beware 
of that leaven in your life. Beware of that instinct that would tell you, you don't need me. You can find life and flourishing on your own because that, that idea will get into your soul and like leaven working its way through a loaf, it will spread to the uttermost parts of your life to where you can stand and see one of the greatest miracles that has ever occurred and it be completely lost on you. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And, and I, I point that out, that it's the Pharisees and Herod, because I think sometimes in church we can say, well, beware of the leaven of Herod, the secular people, the world out there. Like, that's the problem out there. And Jesus says, yeah, by all means, beware of trying to be your own God. It'll make you an unjust, evil, wicked person that history books will write about later and say what an awful human you were. But he says, you know what? Also beware of thinking you're morally superior to that person. Both of these ways will keep you from the kingdom of heaven. Both of these ways are leaven that will work itself through your life and destroy you. And so Jesus says, don't just have your eye on one or the other, but beware of both. Be aware of self-reliance and whatever form it would express your, itself in in your life. And the disciples hear this. Beware of the leaven the Pharisees and Herod, and their response is, oh my goodness, he is right. We only brought one loaf of bread. I mean, it's almost comical at this point. It's like, you, like, seriously. Like, they just missed the point with the feeding of the 4,000, so Jesus pulls them aside. Guys, you're in danger. He uses a deeply biblical metaphor to say, wrong team, wrong team, and that's getting into your soul. You need to be very careful not to let this thinking creep into your soul, and their response is, I'm hungry. Um, See, they are worried about their food. Jesus is worried about their faith. And so, um, again, this is how I know Jesus is God. Because here's what we know Jesus could do at this point. We know Jesus could go, okay, guys, I'm done. He could walk out of the boat and literally just walk away. He could water ski away without a boat and just go pluck some new disciples, maybe from the Gentiles this time. Maybe they're not so thick-headed. Who knows? That's not what Jesus does. He presses in. He doesn't pronounce judgment over them like the Pharisees. There is still hope for these guys because they're still in the boat with Jesus. And so Jesus seeing that they've again misunderstood him and have again proven really incapable of having a spiritual conversation, he starts to ask them some questions. Uh, And he asks them these questions. I think this is really good discipleship lessons. We're all getting to school and discipleship from Jesus today. Um, You got to love someone enough to share a hard word, but then Jesus He asks them these questions to help them see for themselves. It's one thing to say something to someone, like the yeast of the Pharisees that's working its way into your life. It's another thing to let them come to that conclusion. And so Jesus sees, okay, they're just missing the point. So he begins to ask good questions to draw them out to help them see what their real problem is because they're missing it. They think their problem is we didn't pack a big enough lunch. Jesus says, no, your problem is much deeper than that. And so he asks them these questions. Some of them are very technical. He says, how many loaves the first time, fellas? And, and, and they answer him, how many loaves the second time? How many basketfuls did you have left over? Twelve the first time, because he's in Jewish territory. Twelve tribes of Israel. Seven the second time. If you like numbers, here's some holy speculation. Seven's a number for completion in the Bible. So no more feeding miracles. It's done. There's the point. Um, the, the big idea is not what those numbers mean. Um, but it's really in the fact that they fed him the right numbers. Here's the point. They understood him. 
They saw what happened. So it wasn't like they um, passed out and missed the miracle, and that's why they forgot that they did not see the events. Jesus asks them these questions, these technical questions, and draws out of them. Their problem is not a lack of information. They have seen who Jesus is. They have seen what he has done. The problem is they haven't been able to perceive what has been right in front of them. And so Jesus, he does what we said a couple of weeks ago. He goes after their heart. He asks some deeper questions. What's going on with your heart? Is your heart getting hardened? And kind of at the heart of these questions, he asks it this way. Having eyes, do you not see? You told me the right numbers, but you've missed the point. You've seen it. I see eyeballs in your head. Have you not perceived it? Having eyes, do you not see? In other words, the problem is not that they don't have enough information. Um, It's that they're not perceiving what they're seeing. According to Jesus, they have eyes, but they're not able to clearly see. Their sight, it's clouded. Um, And if you were to link that back to the warning that Jesus gave them before these questions, their sight is being clouded by the lies of religion or kind of unreligion that says, I'm going to find life away from God. Their, their sight is being clouded by that self-reliant attitude. And so he says to them, having eyes do you not see? He wants them to see, okay, our problem is not that we um, lack information. Our problem is our eyes aren't working right. We can see, but we cannot perceive. The problem is our sight is clouded. And that's why they're so stuck. They can't see Jesus clearly because there's all this junk in their eyes. There's this yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And I don't know, depending on what guy it is, you know, Judas, this is what ultimately happens to him. The yeast of uh, the Pharisees and Herod eventually gets him and he betrays Jesus. And and it ends very badly for Judas. And Jesus loves these guys and he's telling them, warning, danger. And And he wants them to see. It's not that we lack information. It's that This junk is clouding our eyesight. And if you came in here feeling stuck today, the same is true of you and of me. Because what we see in the Bible is no one can see God clearly and not fall down in worship. I mean, whenever people perceive Jesus as he really is, there is worship, there is praise. We see a lot of that in the Gospel of Mark. We see a lot of that throughout the Bible. That's the only response that makes sense when you see a God this beautiful, a God this good, that would become human and live in our place, die in our place, rise again so that we could be truly human. Like, there is nothing more beautiful than Jesus. He is worthy of our worship and our praise. But like the disciples, we so often have other things that are clouding our vision. And I don't know what it is for you. I don't know if it's the um, leaven of the Pharisees or of Herod. Um, I don't think it actually matters. I think that's for the Holy Spirit to really sift out in your own soul. The point of the text is that these things can cloud our eyesight so that we wouldn't see Jesus clearly. There's this great scene in the last battle where um, Aslan, who's kind of this like Jesus-like figure, restores the world. And there's these, um, I think they're dwarfs. Um, and they're, they're in this new place, but they see it as awful. 
And everyone's like, what's wrong with you? The whole place is restored because there's stuff clouding their eyesight. They can't see beauty for what it is. And though they're in the presence of Aslan, they think this is the worst thing possible because there's so much junk in their eyes. And everyone around them is laughing at them like, what's wrong with you? But they have a very serious condition. And what we see in this text is the disciples have that condition. And so do you and I every time we get stuck. There's something clouding our eyesight. And so if you're stuck in your walk with God, I I have to say this. It's not enough just to say you need to go to church more. You need to read your Bible more. Though there might be some good wisdom in those things to prioritize your relationship with Jesus. It's not ultimately enough to say you need more information. You need to get around God more. Sometimes the reason that we are stuck is we can be in the right place. The disciples are in the boat with Jesus and yet they can't see him because there is stuff that is clouding their eyes. They cannot see clearly. And so the only way we can get unstuck is to have eyes that would see clearly, to see that we are in the presence of the God for whom we were made, and his face towards us is smiling. And so the question I think that begs for us then is, well then, okay, how do we then get eyes that can see? And and I'm so glad when you ask what's in my notes, because that's where this whole thing has been headed. Look at me at verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Some of you, you don't have very good eyesight. You're like, Dad, that's what it looks like before I put my contacts in in the morning. Verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. By the way, if you're like, why did he spit on the guy? You've got to be here through this series. This is not, uh, he's mad at him spitting on him. This is Jesus getting into the muck and the mire, being willing to say, I'll enter into your mess. I'll touch you. I'll be with you. Um, he, He again lays his hands on him. He lays his hands on his eyes, and the man opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And and then he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Verse 27. This gets crazy. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Hey, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, why did he charge them to tell no one about him? You'll have to come back next week. We're going to look at all of that next week. The point is, that's the breakthrough. That's it right there. Um, The whole first half of the Gospel of Mark has been asking, Who is this Jesus? Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this who proclaims the forgiveness of sin? Who is this who talks like God but looks like a human? Who is this Jesus? And and the disciples say, well, man, word on the street is you are a good teacher. Um, Others say you're a a great healer. Um, Other people say you're like one of the um, most famous humans to ever live, that we should make all of our best holidays about you. But Jesus, he's so much more than all of these things. And so he, he presses them and he says, okay, yeah, that's what everyone out there is saying, but you've been with me. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? 
And after what we've seen so far in the last several chapters, I would not have been surprised if Peter was like, you are Mickey Mouse. Like, they're just, they're not at their high point here. And yet it is in this low of a moment, this round and round we go, that Jesus says, who do you say I am? The whole first half of the book has been asking it. No human has been able to get this right. The demons know because they've known him from before eternity. But, um, well, I guess not before eternity. God's eternal. They knew him a long time ago before you and I were around. He says, who do you say that I have? And Peter, and, and commentators will say he's really speaking for the disciples, kind of as the leader of the disciples. So it's not like Peter got it right and the rest of them were like, we're not sure. It says, Peter says, you are the Christ. Now, Christ, it's not Jesus' last name. We'll talk so much more about this next week, but it's a title from the Old Testament. Um, what Peter is essentially saying is you are the rescuer God has promised from the very beginning when sin broke the world. You are the one God said would come into the world, bring his kingdom down. You're not just announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. You're the king. Like, he gets it right. But, okay, I can't preach next week's sermon. What we're doing here is what I want us to spend the rest of our time looking at is, okay, how did Peter go from being so confused in the boat to there at the edge of Caesarea Philippi saying what no other human has ever been able to identify with Jesus so far? How did he go from confusion to clarity? And um, Matthew's gospel I'll tell you this, uh, Matthew's gospel, um, Jesus' dialogue continues. Matthew captures more of the story. Jesus says, hey, blessed are you, Simon, um, because Simon's Peter's other name. He says, blessed are you, um, because you didn't figure this out on your own. God revealed it to you. So how did Peter come to this point? God revealed it to him. What? Well, um, we're not preaching Matthew's gospel. We're preaching Mark's. And Mark, true to his style, he doesn't tell us that. He shows us that. Um, did any of you notice I skipped this whole healing miracle where he healed a blind man? Now, maybe you didn't notice that because you're like, we just call that Tuesday with Jesus. He heals the sick. He makes the blind see. And yes, that is the point. But there's something very particular, something very peculiar going on with this healing of the blind man. And it's directly sandwiched in between this low and the high for the disciples. I believe this is the Holy Spirit's way of telling us through a parable, through a healing, what has happened to these guys. And so let's look at that healing. Um, there are, I would say, if you're the note-taking type, just three incredible truths that can change your life from how Jesus heals this blind man at Bethsaida. And the first one is this. God is the one who opens our eyes. I know I said that Matthew's gospel recorded it, but what do we see in this healing with the blind man at Bethsaida? Is um, The blind man doesn't say, hey Jesus, nice to see you. I'd like to see you. Hang on, let me focus real hard and clear my eyes out. Pfft. Hey, nice to see you, Jesus. That's not how it happened. And, and you can giggle at that, but I think we sometimes approach being spiritually stuck that way. Of Jesus, I've got to clear my eyes so I can see you more clearly. But that's not how it works. God has to open our eyes. This is why, by the way, God's people um, have been praying this prayer for a long time. This comes from Psalm 119 and verse 18. It says, Open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law which is really a reflection of God's character. So God's people have always recognized this. So as humans, we are finite. We have no ability to open our eyes 
Our eyes have been marred and clouded by sin, and we need God to do something to us that we can't do to ourselves. God has to be the one to open our eyes. Jesus had to heal the blind man of Bethsaida. He could not open his eyes on his own. Now, um, the question that often comes up then is, well, so what are you saying? Do I just sit back until I see God is awesome and then I rejoice when I see him? And, and the answer is no. It's not that you just sit back and wait for God to open your eyes. Again, look at this blind man at Bethsaida. It didn't say he was just sitting in his house and magically it happened while he was eating Cheetos. It says that he comes to Jesus, that his friends bring him to Jesus, and he begged him to touch him. So here, here's, church, here's, here's the thing. It's, it's God's job to open our eyes. It's our job to ask. So this man comes and he says, can you open my eyes? I want to see. And, and here's what that truth does. Um, the fact that God is the one who opens our eyes, it should remove all pride. Because if you believe that, then the only difference between you and the worst sinner that you know, just insert that person that upset you this week. Like, oh, thank God I'm not them. Okay, take them for a moment. The only difference between you and them is that God has graciously opened your eyes. It's the only difference. You didn't do that. You were blessed by God and healed and touched by him. So this idea that God is the one who opens our eyes, it should remove all pride. So there's, there's no room for pride in the Christian church. There's room for pride out there, but in here, when we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, who opens our eyes so that we can believe any of this, there's no room for pride. But here's what that should also do. It should also remove the pride for those of you that would say, uh, well, I just, I'll never get unstuck. Like, that's for everybody else, but I'm really struggling. Uh, you know, I'm a worse sinner than anybody else. Jesus just, he's just not out in it for me. He could never possibly love me. And this, this kind of says, get over yourself. That if you think you've out the cross of Jesus Christ, this truth tells you, get over yourself. Because Jesus does not, um, you don't open your own eyes. Jesus opens your eyes. Jesus acts on you in a way that you cannot act upon yourself. And so that means you're just as good of a candidate as anybody. If you would see your need and come to him like this blind man, God is the one who opens our eyes. So be couraged and don't be proud. Have hope. Um, point number two, spiritual sight is progressive. Spiritual sight is progressive. Goodness, I feel like I can't say that word today without that being charged. Hear me out. Um, did you notice that when Jesus touches the man for the first time, it doesn't like quite take? He, he, he spits on him, he touches his eyes, and um, he says, do you see anything? And the guy says, well, kind of. I mean, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking. That's not 2020 eyesight. If, if, if you are looking at me right now and I look like a tree walking, you need to go to the eye doctor after church. This guy, he's not fully healed. And this, by the way, it's the only miracle in all four Gospels that's done in phases. So the question is, is it like Jesus is running low on like Messiah juice today? Like he just didn't have it in him? He's just tired from... No, absolutely not. That, that would be what we call heresy. He's fully God. He um, is walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Like God, his arm is not too short to save. He is not unable to heal this man. Um, I would submit to you, I believe this is a parable that we're meant to see that spiritual sight is progressive, that just as he touches this man's eyes and he can see enough to see light and make out shapes, but he can't yet see perfectly. He needs Jesus to touch him again. His spiritual sight is progressive. 
And, and I think this makes sense with what we see in the rest of the scriptures, that God seems pleased to work in our lives progressively from one gr- degree of glory to another is the way scripture says it. Like, um, could God, when he opens our eyes, just pow, like perfectly open our eyes so that we never struggle with sin again and we just see perfectly forever? Yeah, he could, because what we see in the rest of Scripture is someday when Jesus returns, we will see him fully as he is. We see in a mirror dimly now, but then we'll see him face to face perfectly. We'll never struggle again. So the reason I can say with confidence he could do it is because he will do it. But he chooses not to. For some reason, it seems to please God to open our eyes progressively, to, to transform us from one degree of glory to another. And I could speculate with you all day long about why that is. I think, frankly, that's because more than God not wanting us to sin, God wants relationship with us. And so to open our eyes a little bit of time, one degree of glory to another, keeps us coming to him, asking for the power of his spirit, walking in step with the spirit. It keeps us in relationship, in dependence upon him. But now I'm speculating. Um, the point is, this man... His sight was healed progressively. It's the only time Jesus ever does that, and it's right before Peter has this great moment of realization. And I would submit to you that, um, that many of us are simply stuck between the touches of Jesus. That some of you, he has touched your eyes enough for you to see him as a savior, um, that you've trusted in him, you have hope in him, um, you are... Um, a beloved child of God because of that. You have every reason to celebrate, and yet you walk in here today, and you don't feel every reason to celebrate. You look out at your life, and you see light, but the people, they look like trees walking, and you're like, is this, is this really the full life Jesus came to bring me? And, And the answer is that you are simply stuck between touches, just like this man was, because spiritual sight is progressive and it happens in phases, and that leads us to our third point. Um, Pretending will keep you blind. Pretending that you can see better than you can will keep you blind. Um, It's my experience as a pastor and as a Christian personally that when we can't see Jesus clearly, that when we're not doing well, we tend to um, have this a veneer about our lives. Pretend that we're better than we are. I think it's the yeast of the Pharisees in us that thinks Jesus saved me, but now I need to keep my salvation up. And so if we can't see Jesus clearly, we kind of fake it till we make it. Like, oh, is everyone putting their hands up? Okay, that's what we're doing right now. All right. Yep. Inside, we're like, I can't believe I'm doing this right now. I'm so stressed out about what's going on tomorrow, but no. Okay. Okay. All right. We're not that charismatic. We'll put them down for a little while. Um, and yet, I want you to think about what would have happened to this man? If when Jesus says, do you see anything? He's like, oh yeah, Jesus, I'm good. Thanks so much. See you later. He would have had blurry vision for the rest of his life. Um, And listen how the great London preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones says it, because this is going to be in older English. This is from last century, but my goodness, is this insightful. Um, Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about this idea of pretending, keeping you blind. He says, above everything else, avoid making premature claim that your blindness is cured. It must have been a great temptation to this man to do that. Here is a man who's been blind. Our Lord puts spittle, that's how British people say spit, I had to look that up. Our Lord puts spittle upon his eyes and says to him, do you see? The man says, I see. 
What a temptation it must have been to him to take to his heels and announce to the world, I can see! The man, in a sense, could see. But so far, his sight was incomplete and imperfect, and it was most vital that he should not testify before he had seen clearly. It is a great temptation, and I can well understand it, but it is a fatal thing to do. How many are doing that at the present time and are pressed and urged to do so, proclaiming that they see when it is so patent to many that they do not see very clearly and are really in a state of confusion. What harm people do, they describe men to others as trees walking, how misleading to others. What Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying is that if you pretend that you can see better than you can really see, it's going to keep you from coming to Jesus like this man did and say, can you touch my eyes again? It's better, but I need you to touch me again. And that will keep you from seeing. And that's a shame for you. And then he says at the end there, it's a shame for everyone around you because you're pretending is fooling them about the world. And they're going to start to think that the world is full of walking trees. And we're going to have to create armies to fight the trees. And there's no trees. And so what Martin Lloyd-Jones is getting at, and I think the Holy Spirit would have for us to consider as we move to response, is that if we pretend that we can see him better than we can see him, that will keep us from coming to Jesus to experience mercy and grace and to have our eyes touched and opened afresh. And that's the worst thing that can happen to you. And I don't want that for you. Jesus doesn't want that for you. And so he has given us his word to say, He's given us this miracle to remind us that spiritual sight is progressive. Don't pretend to see better than you can, but simply come to him like this man and say, Jesus, it helped. I love you. You're my Lord, but I'm dry. I haven't heard from you in a while. I don't know what's going on. I want to see you more clearly. Would you help me? Would you touch me? And so that's what I want to invite you to do as we turn in response now to to come to him and, and consider where do you need more sight to see Jesus more clearly? Where do you need a breakthrough in your life? Because here is the Jesus that I proclaim to you today. He is the God who became human to enter into our broken world, to enter into the, all the ways that we have sinned and brought in injustice and evil into God's world. His response to that is not to kick us out of the boat, but to get into the boat with us, to enter into our mess, to get into the muck and the mire. And just like he led this man out of the city, so Jesus in a few chapters will be led outside of the city of Jerusalem. And he's not going to see walking trees. He's going to see a stable tree and they're going to hang him on the tree. And the hands that touch this man, they will be pierced with nails. And this wasn't an accident. He goes to the cross and dies in our place for our sin so that he could rise again and say, whoever would trust in me and not be self-reliant and receive my salvation, you are a beloved child of God. And it doesn't matter how you drifted this week. It doesn't matter how stuck you are. It doesn't matter how sinful and foolish you've been this week. I have paid for that sin. That sin is removed from you all I have left for you is love. And so would you come to me? Because I came not just to save you, I came to open your eyes to increasingly enjoy that salvation. So would you come to me this morning? And that's the invitation. Let's pray. Jesus, you are a good and gracious 
King. I, I, I thank you that your response to us is not to get out of the boat, but that your response is to draw near to us, to um, invite us to come to you and ask for healing. And so I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to do that this morning. Would you help us to be honest about, man, where, where we cannot see you clearly? Would you help us to be honest first with you? To be honest with ourselves about, man, maybe I do feel stuck here. Holy Spirit, would you just break through the lies that we tell ourselves about how we're doing better than we really are this morning? Would you bring us to see where we need you so that we might come like this man to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you open my eyes afresh this morning? You are a good God, and so I ask you to do what I cannot, and that is move in each and every one of us that we might come to you like this blind man and like Peter, have our eyes open just a little bit more this morning, that we might see you in your glory and worship you this morning a little more fully, a little more freely, and walk out of here with more life than we came in. So Jesus, open our eyes. Help us in your beautiful name, I ask. Amen.